Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. This week we'll be discussing Hillary Clinton's likely run for the White House, the intensifying row over who should be the next European Commission President and why it matters, and the campaign for Scottish independence. For the latest on all these issues, I'll be joined by our staff correspondents in Washington, Brussels and London. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. The US former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has been back in the news this week with the publication of her memoir, Hard Choices, a title undoubtedly meant to reinforce the impression that this is a woman who is not afraid to take tough decisions when necessary. But she insists she has yet to make perhaps the biggest decision of her career, whether to seek the Democratic Party nomination for the presidency of the United States after Barack Obama concludes his second term in January 2017. I'm joined by Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent. Simon, is there any doubt that Hillary Clinton will indeed seek her party's nomination to uh, succeed Barack Obama when he steps when his, his second term concludes? I don't think so. I mean, you pointed out there, and as she says in her book, and she's been publicly saying this for the best part of a year now, that she hasn't decided to run yet. But I, I see it as inevitable, and certainly people close to her believe she's going to run and are making all the right preparations that they should be doing at this stage for her to run. And uh, she's been doing loads of one-to-one interviews in the recent days to publicize the book. And in one of the most recent ones, she told Diane Sawyer um, at ABC News that she will probably not make an announcement for the end of the year. So really, she's providing no new clarity around whether she's going to run or not. I mean, she said in that interview, I'm going to decide when it feels right for me to decide. So it's very cryptic still. But I think she's also been strategic on this because she doesn't want to declare herself as a candidate and put herself up on a pedestal and leave herself exposed um, to even more pronounced attacks from the Republicans um, if she is out there as a candidate. I mean, the Republicans' criticism of her, particularly over the attack on the diplomatic outpost in Benghazi in Libya uh, in September 2012, that's been pretty intense. uh, And certainly they've been attacking her on that for some time. But how she's presented herself as uh, U.S. Secretary of State in the four years that this memoir covers... She's carefully preparing at, uh, uh, the ground for a presidential run. Certainly what I've read shows that she's been fairly tactical, but also quite bland. This is a fairly, uh, fairly uh, dry book. Uh, she's really looking to maintain friendships and to avoid making any new enemies. And she really tries to avoid stepping on any landmines or creating any new ones. For example, in the book, the only mistake that she actually admits to is that she supported the war in Iraq. Uh, And on the Benghazi attack, um, she quite smartly leaked details of that chapter well before the book was published. And on Benghazi, she said, yes, I was ultimately responsible for what happened, but that she gave very direct instructions to her security experts that they were responsible for protecting the outpost. Um, So basically, she said it it wasn't an issue for her, the responsibility on the ground, and that was below her pay grade. So I think that, yeah, I think she'll run ultimately, but she'll take her time deciding so as not to put herself out there in the bear pit that is the presidential election campaign. And her new book really neatly lays the ground for that. And if she does, if she does indeed decide to run, Simon, is there anybody uh, within her party who can credibly oppose her? Is she likely to have a have a, a fairly free run at it? I think she will. I think there's no real opponents if the polls are be t- to be believed. I mean, she's the out-and-out favourite. There's a recent poll done by ABC News and by Washington, the Washington Post, and it put her at a whopping 69%, and that's well ahead of other potential candidates. Joe Biden, the vice president, she's on 12%. Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator, and she's pretty much a darling of the left-wing progressives in the Democratic Party. She'd be a, a natural uh, heir apparent to Obama, Obama's progressive campaign and agenda. And she's at 7%. 
Um, but I think at this stage, some of the candidates, they're not positioning themselves to challenge Hillary, but really just hanging around the fringes on the off chance that she decides she won't run. And if that happens, then the race will be wide open. So they're positioning themselves well for that. And I think there's a number of leading Democratic candidates as well that are positioning themselves, that have ambitions for a senior role in her administration if she were to run and be elected, uh, and that they may try go, to go as far as possible in the primary race in the hope of securing a plum role in her administration. And the names to watch there are uh, Martin O'Malley, the governor of Maryland. He's another progressive liberal. And he's been touring the country. He's uh, as he's chairman of the Democratic Governors Association, which puts him in a very strong position. I think others to watch are Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. His father, Mario, would have been well-known and thought of as a presidential candidate, but he never ran. Um, Cuomo would have a capacity to raise large funds in New York to finance a presidential bid. And then other names that have been thrown around, Deval Patrick, the African-American governor of Massachusetts, he's close to Obama, has come out and defended the president robustly against Republican attacks. He's one to watch. But like O'Malley, I think he might struggle outside the Northeast um, in middle America and places like Iowa where, um, you know, you really sow sow the seeds uh, for a presidential bid. Um, But I think also another thing to watch is the the other, how other candidates might draw Hillary uh, to the left. For example, Elizabeth Warren, if she runs, Hillary may be forced to respond to her um, popularity, and she's very popular amongst the Republican grassroots. That might draw Hillary to the left in a campaign. So there are really issues to watch, but I think that at the moment, uh, Hillary is the out-and-out favourite. Um, yes, and as you say, uh, Simon, she doesn't have to show her hand really until maybe the, the end of the year, so she doesn't have to start talking about policies at this point or whatever. But if she does indeed run and... and um, it does ultimately succeed in, 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 in getting to the White House. How might we expect her presidency to differ from that of Barack Obama? I think she'd be less less progressive than the president. And the view would be that she'd swing America back to the centre. Um, she'd certainly, I think, reverse the retreat from the world that Obama is overseeing on his foreign policy. And he has said that, you know, the US will act if their core interests, if its core interests are affected. But um, really, they will only act collectively with other countries if there are issues that where their core interests are not affected. So it's quite conditional uh, American involvement in the world. I think Hillary would be far more outward facing than Obama on, her far, on foreign policy. And I think that she'd continue uh, what she did as Secretary of State for those four years. And she'd be a very, progr- very, very proactive president on the diplomatic front. She's also in record as saying the U.S. needs to do a better job of, of sending the message, a pro-democracy message around the world to what she's described as counteracting the extremist jihad narrative. And then at home, I think her close ties with Wall Street fundraisers, I think that would suggest that she's more willing to move to woo big business um, and that would draw her closer, but obviously not as close to uh, the Republican establishment. But certainly a big shift to the centre, I think, you'd see under a Hillary Clinton presidency. Do you think, for example, on, on say, Syria, if she had been president um, this time around, would, would, would it be more likely would have seen the US intervention there? I think we I think we would have seen uh, the US take a much more proactive role. I certainly don't think that she if she had said as Obama said the use of chemical weapons would 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 be a, a crossing of a red line and the fact that Obama didn't act I think that, uh, Hillary Clinton would have acted if she had said something like that although I think she's savvy enough not to have painted herself into a corner uh, by making such a statement but I think she would have been far more aggressive in dealing with the uh, with the conflict in Syria and she certainly has been much more aggressive and um, in in her advice to the president on the situation in Syria 
Okay. Now, now in, in contrast to uh, the Democratic Party, where she's a clear front runner for the for the position if she seeks it, it's a much more crowded field on the Republican side, isn't it? There are several candidates really uh, jockeying for position there to to secure the Republican ticket. Well, it's it's certainly a wide open field. Um, I mean, the names there are there are a multitude of names mentioned. Again, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, his name is continuously raised in in polls. His ability to win. Uh, what is a traditionally blue democratic state in New Jersey makes him a candidate that could win over um, swing voters or Republican voters. But I think the view is is that he may be fatally wounded by this controversy over the politically motivated bridge closures um, on the George Washington Bridge between New York and New Jersey. I think that will come back to bite him. Another name mentioned is the former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. He's um, a leading candidate in the Republican side is Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. He certainly appeals to the young libertarian wing of the party, which is growing in strength on the Republican side. And then another candidate can't really really be ruled out at this stage is the Wisconsin Congressman um, Paul Ryan, who was Mitt Romney's running mate in 2012. He's seen as something of a bridge builder um, in the party between the establishment and Tea Party wings of the party. He's very popular amongst the Tea Party faction because he's strong in ec- economic policy, attacking big government. Um, again, he's an economic wonk, so he's regarded as someone who's quite strong on that, which is a major issue, a domestic issue in American politics. Again, another candidate who's mentioned quite a bit is the Florida Sen- Senator Marco Rubio. Um, he's Cuban-American, so he'd appeal uh, to um, immigrant voters, and that's a constituency that the Republicans feel they need to win over if they have any chance of getting the White House back. And then um, a female candidate on the Republican side is Susanna Martinez, who's the New, Me- uh, New Mexico governor. She'd be regarded somewhat as the Republican Hillary, although wouldn't have the national profile that Hillary Clinton would have. Um, and again, another former presidential candidate, Rick Perry, a Texas governor, would be uh, someone who'd be um, mentioned as being in the running. But the, again, one of the out-and-out favourites. But again, quite down the, the nothing like the, it generates nothing like the support that Hillary does on the Democratic side is the former Florida governor Jeb Bush, a brother of George W. Bush, the former president. I think the real challenge for any of those candidates is they really have to show that the party is shifting back to establishment candidates. And we've seen that in the recent Republican primaries and congressional elections where Republican voters have gone for more mainstream candidates. So really to have a chance of winning over more Republican voters and even swing or independent voters to beat Democrats. And I think that's really something that needs to be done in 2016. They need a candidate who can unite the party, someone who can who someone who can sell themselves and someone who can get the job done and being seen to be getting the job done. And I think they'll have the greatest prospect of becoming the presidential candidate on the Republican side. And you mentioned, Simon, Jeb Bush there. I, um, I think it's a remarkable statistic that six of the nine of the last nine US presidential elections has had either a, a Bush or a, or a Clinton on the ticket and in one in one case both. Uh, sorry, on, on the rival tickets, I should say. Um, is, there a, is there a prospect of a Clinton versus Bush um, election um, this time around again? And, and have the American people sort of, do they question this, these, these two families having such a, a stranglehold almost on American politics now for so long? Well, I, I think there's a kind of a romanticized view of the Clinton administration and on the Republican side to an extent to, to the um, to the both Bush presidencies. Um, and I think, you know, it's better the devil you know in, in a way. Um, and I think that's why those two those two names you mentioned, Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush, are regarded as that's the race that we're going to see in the run-up to 2016. I'd say on the Democratic side, Hillary obviously is a clear favorite if she decides to run. 
um, on the crowded field. The Republican side, I think Jeb Bush certainly is a leading candidate. He's tying at the moment in a recent poll done by CNN with Rand Paul, the Kentucky senator, they're neck and neck. But again, it's only at 13%, so still some way uh, away from where Hillary is on, in 69 and in another poll. So I think the challenge for the Republicans is picking a candidate in a process that really doesn't do them irreparable harm uh, for the presidential race. The, the primary race is real doggy dog and um, Republicans come through that pretty damaged. And we saw that in the case of, of, of Mitt Romney uh, and certainly in John McCain in 2008. So given the divisions within the Republican Party and the lack of strong leadership, I think that could be very difficult. And if they fail, that will put Hillary in the White House if, as I say, she does decide to run, and I think that's inevitable. OK, Simon Carswell in Washington. Thanks for that analysis. The stalemate between Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron and Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel over who should succeed Jose Manuel Barroso as President of the European Commission continued on Tuesday following a mini-summit in Sweden hosted by Prime Minister Frederick Reinfeldt. It concluded with Merkel restating her support for Jean-Claude Juncker, the former Luxembourg Prime Minister, in his bid to secure the Commission post. Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent, joins me from Brussels. Suzanne, not only David Cameron, but the entire British political establishment are digging their heels in on this issue, and they say Juncker is not the man to implement the reforms which they claim the EU must engage in if it is to win back the support of and confidence of its citizens. Why are the British so vehemently opposed uh, to Juncker? Yes, well, I suppose Britain had a history of blocking European Commission appointments. Uh, it similarly did so 10 years ago uh, when Tony Blair was the Prime Minister. Um, but on this issue, it's been brewing for quite a while. One of the issues is that the Conservative Party is not part of the European People's Party, the EPP. That's the group that chose Jean-Claude Juncker So back in Dublin in March. So in a sense, Cameron wasn't at the table when the decision was made. So that's one issue. But what's now happened is not only the Conservative Party, but also the Labour Party and even the, even the Liberal Democrats, who would be seen as very pro-EU in Britain, they've all got behind Cameron on this issue and, and want to say no to Juncker. Um, there's been a sense, I think, up to now that um, Angela Merkel's support for Juncker has been lukewarm and that you know Cameron is the, is the more determined of the two. But she's come out again after today's meeting and yet again restated her support for him. So somebody's going to have to back down here at some stage, aren't they? Yeah, it, it, this, this is the difficulty. I mean, who's going to be able to back down without losing face? It, it seems that both leaders have backed themselves into a corner in a sense. But there has been a shift in the power dynamics. A week ago, Angela Merkel seemed to be on the back foot. Um, she hadn't really come out with full support for Juncker. But then under huge pressure, quite unusual pressure from the journalist press, who you know were really advocating that Germany embrace this bits and candidate process, um, Merkel relented, I suppose, and, and came out with uh, you know unqualified support for Juncker. There's also pressure from her junior coalition partners. So she, she's getting a lot of domestic pressure on this. But in this instance, I mean, Britain is always seen as a country that's, that's always complaining about the EU. It's always got issues with the way, way things are run from Brussels. But, I mean, in fairness to David Cameron, he does have support from a lot of leaders. He, he's got support from the Swedish Prime Minister, the Dutch Prime Minister, the Hungarian Prime Minister. And a lot of other countries are a bit lukewarm about this whole process that they feel has been kind of hoisted on them by the European Parliament. So that's what's quite interesting about this debate, that, that, that Cameron is fighting a battle, but he, he's fighting a battle that quite a lot of people support him on. So that's why it's, it's a particularly difficult issue for Angela Merkel.
As you mentioned, Suzanne, uh, Cameron has received support on this issue from the Swedish Prime Minister, Frederick Reinfeldt. He's making a, a, a somewhat um, a different argument about the, the, the whole process. And um, he thinks that European heads of government are perhaps giving away too much power to the European Parliament on this issue. Can you explain what's, what's that, what that's about and what, what's at issue there? Yeah, this is a kind of broader issue that's at stake here that could be quite serious in terms of the, where power lies in the EU. So in, with the Lisbon Treaty uh, that Ireland voted on uh, back in 2009, a new clause was introduced that states that the next European Commission president, that the election of that person needs to take account of, of the results of the European elections. Now, that's quite ambiguous. Um, it doesn't say the candidate of the, of the largest party in the group in the, in the elections should, should be elected. But this is what the European Parliament has interpreted it as. So they, the European Parliament, their groups have been saying this for the last, you know, eight, nine months. And leaders have kind of reluctantly gone along with it, but really not endorsed it. And now what seems to have happened is that, that the Parliament seems to be winning the battle. And really what, I mean, Reinfeldt is making good points here about why should member states, you know, just have to, have to go with the European Parliament's person. But really, these arguments should have been made earlier in the process, six months ago, maybe three months ago. But instead of which, everybody kind of let the process go on and didn't really think this would happen. And now they're stuck with a real stalemate. And in particular, German Chancellor Angela Merkel is being really pressed by domestic media to go with this, to go with this system. They say that German voters voted in the European elections with this system in mind. And that is undemocratic if, if she doesn't endorse that. So the last thing German Chancellor Angela Merkel wants to, wants to appear as is somebody who's, who's not supporting this kind of democratic system. So it looks like maybe the member states will be kind of stuck with, with, this, with this process that none of them are very happy about and that we could see a real victory from the European Parliament on this. Now, Suzanne, if you look at the last European Parliament election and the, the, once again a relatively low turnout across the, um, across the member states, 43% uh, um, overall, uh, a large uh, kind of move away to fringe parties and so on. So it's clear that there is a, a disconnect between some citizens, certainly, and and Brussels. And now you have this row going on about the European Commission presidency. And is there is there any reason why people should really care? I mean, wh- what impact does this have on citizens at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, the whole the point of the spits and candidate process is that you know it's trying to engage voters. One of the criticisms that Britain, in particular, has levelled at the EU constantly is that it's it's run by unelected bureaucrats. So what the European Parliament are saying, and it's a clever point, is, well, actually, it, with our system, if you vote in the election, you're voting for a party that has a candidate who will become the next Commission president. So you have a direct say in, in, in the next president of the European Commission. Now, what's happened is that a lot of people are not actually that quite happy with Jean-Claude Juncker as a candidate. So, ironically, it's kind of an exercise in democracy. If the European Union does end up with Jean-Claude Juncker, well, then perhaps it means that in the next European election in five years' time, citizens will be more engaged and say, oh, right, we better, we better really think about this because the next European Commission president will be a result of the elections. So you've, you've kind of got this big debate about, like, wh- where, does, where does the authority of the European Union lie? Should voters have more of a say through elections? Or should, as Reinfeldt is saying, should actually, it does power and democracy lie in, in our member states in the way when, when our leaders go out to Brussels and represent us? That's probably a better way, some people say, of, of making the European Union more accountable. So there's really kind of, we're really at a crossroads at the moment on, on where this is going to go. And, and if, they, if they back Juncker, well, that is definitely setting, setting a precedent uh, for the way in which the European elections will be run for years to come.
And I hate Suzanne to ask people to make predictions. It's not fair, but um, what do you think is going to happen? Um, well, I mean, less than a week ago, I would have said no to Jean-Claude Juncker, but I think that the tide has turned now and that, that it's going to be very, very difficult for Angela Merkel uh, to back down on this. Now, whether Britain is going to get some other concessions, um, maybe a choice over who becomes council president or a better commissionership, um, they really want their commissioner to be an important commissioner. And um, there's been some resistance from that in Brussels, so maybe they will get some leeway on that. But I suppose at the moment, I would have to say that I think it will be Jean-Claude Juncker, ultimately. Okay, Suzanne Lynch from Brussels, thank you for that. The Scottish independence referendum campaign has entered its final 100 days and groups on both sides this week stepped up their drive to secure the support of voters when they go to the polls on the 18th of September. Our London editor, Mark Hennessy, has been taking the temperature in Scotland in recent days. Mark, first of all, the no side, in other words, those who want to retain the union between Scotland and the rest of the UK, have been ahead in this campaign from the beginning, but but it's never looked an entirely secure lead. What's the current state of play in terms of uh, the gap between the two sides at this point? Well, the gap is, is still in favour of uh, there being a no vote uh, in September. And however, it would be worth noting that it has changed a little bit over uh, the last year. Uh, certainly, there were indications from the autumn of last year that the Yes campaign were getting momentum behind them. That certainly continued into the spring. Uh, however, uh, their campaign seems to have become slightly becalmed in the last six to eight weeks. Now, obviously, one is going on opinion polling uh, to... to uh, back up this and these things are always uh, somewhat of a a curate's egg but nevertheless there is no doubt that the nerves and unhappiness within the Better Together the pro-union campaign has eased in the last uh, few weeks. There have been some efforts made to strengthen their organisation. There have been uh, some Labour MPs, people like Frank Roy from Motherwell has been brought on board and there is a greater sense of a bit of energy within their campaign and it is quite striking that many of the people who want to vote against independence in September are critical of Better Together for not being able to give them the kind of language that they need to uh, justify their decision in conversations with their neighbours. That was very evident at an event on Saturday lunchtime uh, in Stirling where the former Labour Minister John Reid uh, was speaking and he used uh, humour and, and passion in a way that we haven't seen very often from the Better Together people during the course of this campaign and there are a lot of people out there who want to see more of that between now and September the 18th. Whether they're going to get it in the way that they want is obviously something we will have to wait and see. Yes, in fact, you, you quote in, in Tuesday's Irish Times Alistair Darling, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, on, on that point, saying that, uh, admitting really that while he felt they'd been winning the debate over statistics and numbers and so on, they hadn't been winning the the, the, the emotional debate, if you like. And to what extent, uh, having spent so much time now in Scotland recently looking at this campaign, to what extent do you think people's uh, position on this comes down to raw emotion more than anything else? Well, I mean, you have people at, at both margins uh, who have opinions that are never going to change. That there are a bunch of people for whom independence has been their life's uh, work in many ways, and nothing that they're going to say or hear is going to impact in any way on uh, the opinions they have. Equally, there are people on the other side who are in favour of the continuation of the union. So the issue is this middle ground opinion. And uh, Gordon Brown, the former Labour Prime Minister, uh, was speaking in London on Monday, and he was 
was uh, very critical of the Conservative-led government in London for ruling out uh, a a use of sterling for Scotland after the referendum and a variety of other issues that the London government have uh, raised. And he says that's being interpreted in Scotland as being uh, again the Scots and that it's exciting a negative opinion uh, as a result. Now, if it is true that there, there was definitely a kickback to the comments that were made by the Chancellor of the Exchequer when he ruled out sterling for Scotland. Equally, it is true that even if Scots don't like it, that there were a percentage, a significant percentage of people who are worried about the, the, what currency uh, Scotland would have uh, were it to become independent and do not believe that as of this point that they are getting uh, proper answers from the Scottish National Party. Now, the, Alex Salmond, the Scottish First Minister, is saying, yes, there will be a shared uh, currency after uh, the referendum if there is a yes vote, and basically ignore what you're hearing from London, because when they're faced with political reality, that reality will strike home, and then people will, will settle down and do a deal. And that, uh, there is a, certainly a political argument you can make behind that. However, it doesn't actually assuage the concerns of people who have uh, doubts in their mind about what currency they would have in their pocket were they to vote yes. Okay, Mark, a feature of the campaign, Mark, I think, has been that um, all of the establishment parties at Westminster um, have offered increased um, devolved powers, if you like, to Scotland after a referendum um, if there is a no vote. Is there a danger from the pro-union point of view that they're going to... um, uh, outdo themselves uh, in offering, uh, I say, so many devolved powers, and they, they will they will kind of give away a de facto Scottish independence anyway. Well, I mean, there have been long-standing differences between the various parties on what uh, devolution should look like. Uh, the Liberal Democrats historically have been in favour of home rule in the Irish understanding of that word. Uh, the Conservatives have never been in favour of devolution, uh, or at least up until recently. Um, uh, Labour have always had a, a slightly more questionable attitude to it in some ways. Um, I mean, they were the party who brought in uh, devolution under Donald Dewar, but you did always got the impression that uh, large numbers of people in the the organization in London, most particularly Tony Blair, never quite understood what it was that they had signed up for and in many ways gave away powers that they had never really thought they were going to be giving away. Now we're seeing a situation where if they're not in total agreement, they are getting to a point where they're at least on the same page, as it were, in terms of what a devolution plan might look like, an extra devolution plan might look like, where Scots to vote no. Equally, it is clear that there will be no full and final settlement of that offering before Scots go to vote. And uh, the SNP are making the point, as they've done uh, repeatedly in the past, that Scots were promised uh, extra powers and devolution in the 1970s when they uh, faced a referendum then, and uh, those powers uh, never came forward. And what they got for their trouble was 18 years of Conservative rule, which many Scots will tell you is the reason why uh, Scotland is in the position that it's now in in some ways and that the industrial heartland that it uh, had enjoyed was basically taken away during the uh, the years of conservative rule. Oh, okay. And Mark, finally and, and briefly, um, 
You mentioned Alex Salman there, the Scottish First Minister, who I suppose is the face of the, the Yes campaign. Mm. You're writing in Wednesday's Irish Times about um, the Radical Independence campaign. Um, who are they exactly and what impact are they, are they having? Well, I mean, they're a collection. They're very much on the left uh, of Scottish uh, political opinion. There would be people from the Scottish uh, Socialist Workers' Party, uh, p- equally people from the Greens, uh, many of them, in fact, perhaps non-aligned. Uh, they would have a, a, a different vision of Scotland, which would be largely influenced, I think, by the Common Wheel Foundation, where uh, it would be a very left-wing, it would be one where there would be uh, increased payments in terms of welfare and income distribution and a whole variety of other issues. Now, what's striking talking to them is that there is a degree of vibrancy from them and they are very active on the ground and they certainly claim that they are signing people up for voter registration in places where none of the other parties, including the Scottish National Party, are able to to, to reach. And if it turns out in September that uh, the, the, the referendum was to be won, which doesn't look like it will happen at the moment, but if that was to be the case, then certainly the radical independence campaign will seek to argue that they were very influential in bringing it about. Equally, it is quite clear were that to happen that the Scottish National Party and Alex Salmon most particularly will be the ones who will put their brand all over uh, the victory and people like the Radical Independence uh, campaign will be shoved into the background as quickly as possible if Alex Salmon has anything to do about it. Okay. Well, Mark Hennessy will be returning to this topic, no doubt, in the weeks ahead. Um, Thank you for that. Well, that's all from this week's edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Chris Dooley, goodbye.